Welcome to Transit Unplugged. I'm your host, Paul Comfort. And today we continue our tour of the United Kingdom, visiting Glasgow, Scotland. And the CEO, Gordon McLennan, gives us a tour of their operations, talked to me about uh, their big new subway modernization program, a $288 million plan to refurbish the stations, the track, and tunnel upgrades to new cars for their subway system, which is the third oldest subway in the world. We got to ride it and tour it, and uh, it's a big program. I also got to talk to Valerie Davidson, the assistant chief executive and met a lot of his staff. Uh, a great guy, a very entrepreneurial, leading a great system in the historic Glasgow, Scotland area called the Strathclyde Partnership for Transport is the name of the system. You'll hear all about it on this special edition of Transit Unplugged. What does it mean to be a successful public transit agency? What are you doing to lead the way? It's time to learn from the top transit professionals in North America. This is Transit Unplugged with your host, Paul Comfort. I'm Paul Comfort, your host of Transit Unplugged, and today is another exciting edition. We're in Scotland today with Gordon McLennan, who is Chief Executive of Strathclyde Partnership for Transport, or SPT in uh, a famous city you may have heard of before called Glasgow, Scotland. And uh, it's exciting to be here today. I'm in his office in downtown of the city. Thanks so much for having us here today. You're very welcome, glad to have you here. Yeah, we've spent a little bit of time this morning talking about the system and I can't wait for you, our listeners, to hear all the good things that are happening here. Uh, Gordon, why don't you tell us a little bit about the structure of your system itself? What, what, you know, um, what parts of the system do you have? Which parts do you operate? Kind of what the role is of SPT in this region? We run uh, a complete subway network, which is a metro for other people. Uh, and we own, we operate it, maintain it. We also run some bus uh, stations. And these bus stations are one in Glasgow and, and other outlying areas. And also another main feature of what we do is we develop the regional transport strategy so that people can understand what's imp- what will be important, what is important now, and what the future should like, look like for transport. As part of how Great Britain generally operates outside of London, tell us how the bus network generally operates here. It's uh, obviously decentralized, so the government decided that this would be a private sector, companies that would do it in the future, uh, and that's what happens here. So we have three or four major players round about Glasgow. First group, we have uh, McGill's, and we also have some other smaller operators, I would say. Other big one, it would be CityLink uh, and... Uh, Stagecoach? Stagecoach. Mm-hmm. Very good. So, um, and then don't you operate some of your own demand response transit here? We have that, and but what we normally do on that is we have some buses that we own ourselves, but we're moving to a situation where we actually just contract that with providers, bus providers. Okay. And you were telling me that you transport 40,000 school children every day? We do. We do that on behalf of the local authorities who have all decided that it's better for one organization to do that, make the contracts, hopefully get better prices for them, and make sure that the standards are maintained. Gotcha. So Strathclyde is, is in common parlance, a county, right? And Glasgow is the big city in the county, right? Well, just to put it in context, you know, the population of Scotland is somewhere between five and six million. Okay. Uh, The Strathclyde area covers about 40% of these people. So we're looking at, you know, nearly up to 2.7 million people in that area. Right. And they're all people who are relying on transport one way or another. Gotcha. Tell us about the structure of your organization. So we're responsible to a partnership board because we represent 12 local authorities in this area. 
and these local authorities have a different political uh, representation and these people are on our partnership board elected by the different councils and so for the 12 local authorities we actually have 20 board members who are councillors okay and we also have some other people who come on board because they have some kind of technical expertise Yes. And those are your board of directors, so to speak, of the agency? They're our board of directors. They're the people that take the decisions on whatever is, you know, brought forward to them, whether they, you know, accept it or don't accept it. Right. So they are the final authority, arbiter and accept. How often do they meet? Generally about, there's a couple of subcommittees within. So we have a partnership, which is the big meeting. We have two subcommittees below that. So I would say an average on all of these meets about 12 a year. Okay. Gotcha. And how are you funded? How is the overall system the funded is through the local authorities, so the money comes from the Scottish government. It's funded through the local authorities, and our revenue budget this year is about £36 million, and that's split up, and it's based on headcount coming through the local authorities. Okay, and but you have a big capital budget too, right? We do have a big capital budget. That varies year to year, depending on what the Scottish government's got available. This year it's £25 million. Okay. But outside of that, we have a big programme just now, which is a subway modernisation programme, and that was separate to that other uh, annual funding. And that's a £288 million programme, and that's for new subway trains, which will be, you know, unattended train operation, uh, and for a lot of modernisation of our stations, tunnels, and many things like that. That's great. You have the third oldest subway system in the world here. Yeah, that's nice. So we've got the third oldest, but also <laughs> it means that we have a lot of repair and maintenance to do on tunnels because they're not all done with a very modern system, you know, with like a beautiful tunnel boring machine right, with right. all these nice sections going in. It's all lovely and dry. Uh, we have two crossings of the River Clyde down low, and actually, for most people's amazement, these are the driest places in our tunnel network. Is that right? Yeah, they ah. are. Yeah. So the system is pretty simple. It's like a, It's like an oval, right? It is. It's a yeah. very simple system, two-way system, so you can go clockwise or counterclockwise. So actually, the, the longest journey you could take if you go one end of the city to the other, and instead of just going around all day, is about 24 minutes. Okay, very good. And um, tell us about uh, kind of your employee count and those kind of things. Okay, well, the employee count at the moment is just uh, under 500 uh, and that's you know, obviously split across different areas because we have people working in bus, we have people working in the subway, we have head office staff who, who are doing, you know, the working out the network, yes. all that kind of different thing. So, but it, we did have a lot more people than that. We had about, you know, I would say about eight years ago, we had 758 people. And what we do is we just look at what we what we do. Uh, and of course, I've mentioned the, the kind of thing I look at is that... Uh, do we need to do it? That's the first question. If we need to do it, how do we make it better? And I, we tend to go back quite a lot to first principles and say, is something new come into the marketplace that could help us? So if we don't need to do it, dump it. If we do need to do it, we'll make it a lot better. You were telling me an example of, of that, that process. This is, this is um, very unusual. You know, I've talked to 50 CEOs over the last 18 months and been one myself, and normally, it's easy to start something in government, but it's very difficult to stop it. But you've somehow been able to figure this out. So, like, give me an example of what, you know, you looked at something and said, you know what, do we really need to be doing that? Yeah. Well, very simple one is giving out travel information to people. Now, appropriately, that would be maybe 20 years ago because people didn't have iPhones in their pocket. They couldn't go on the Internet. They couldn't, whatever it would be. 
Nowadays, that information is very much available. So I'll give you a very live uh, kind of example for people would be arriving at an airport. We had an office in the Glasgow airport, which was a big office. And people would come down, pick up their baggage, walk out and say, how do I get a bus or whatever it is to somewhere else? Uh, and our people would try and tell them. But in reality, what was happening was people were coming down the stairs and do you ask our people, do you know where the toilets are? Now, that's a good thing. So they find out where the toilets are. It just wasn't for a public authority like us to be doing that. That would be something that the airport should be looking at. So now that was not just at the airport, that was replicated right across the region with lots of regional offices giving out travel information, which actually a lot of people were getting gradually less and less used to going to. So we, over the piece, closed all them. And that was difficult in a political sense because councillors had representation in these areas and didn't want shops closing in their local authority area. Right. So it was difficult, but we worked through that. So that's just one part of lots of things that were done. I think that's a great uh, lesson for people who are in leadership to reevaluate and, like you said, go back to first principles and say, funding's short everywhere, right? And so do we need to be doing everything we're doing? Yeah. That's great. And, you know, we, we found it in many aspects. And actually, one of the things that, and it's a criticism ourselves, are you probably very siloed? And when we look at these silos and say, what is it you do with the information? I'll pass it to somebody over there. What do they do with it? And then they pass it to somebody else. And the people who were receiving it were just getting it in the format that the previous department had developed it. And instead of going back to say, let's just think end-to-end process. What is the purpose of what we're doing? And can we either cut out some of these or streamline them or start to use a, a, a way that we can actually get that information to the end point much quicker? and cheaper. That's good. Your background is engineering, you were telling me. So tell me some about your career and how you ended up here as CEO. Okay, well, I'm not a traditional transport person. I've not been in transport all my life. I served my apprenticeship with Rolls-Royce. Many people would know that, aero engine manufacturer. I then went on to work for a company called Babcocks and Wilcox, big boiler manufacturer. So I moved through the kind of management layers in there. I then joined a company called John Brown Engineering in Clyde Bank. And John Brown Engineering are the company responsible for building the big stately liners, one of them being the QE2 that a lot of people would know about. But at the time I got there, the QE, the shipbuilding was finished okay. and we were building gas turbines under, and the gas turbines were built under license from General Electric in the United States. Very fruitful business for me. I was a manufacturing director of John Brown for 11 years. Wow. After I left John Brown, I went to join Scottish Enterprise and I was the director of high growth businesses. So in other words, I was helping people who were trying to develop high growth businesses, giving them business advice and things. And then I moved to SPT, and I moved to SPT in 2006, and I've been the chief executive since 2010. So I've had, and I do enjoy it, and it's a very, very worthwhile and fruitful career in terms of you know, personal development. Yeah, yeah. What do you like best about what you do as the chief executive here? I like best about it, the fact that I, I'm probably a kind of difficult chief executive because I do meddle a wee bit. So <laughs> I like to dive down. I find being a chief executive only is a bit boring. And so I do go into quite a lot of detail. Now, that is a good thing and a bad thing. I mean, people could look at it and say, well, you should, you've got people that you just hand it to them. But sometimes that's good and sometimes it's not so good. But I like the variety. I like to be involved yes. in the bus. I like to be involved in the strategy. I'm not a politician. I like to see what's happening in the political arena. Uh, and, uh, you know, the subway modernization is a fantastic project that, you know, hopefully will, you know, 
revolutionise what happens for us because at the moment our, our trains, you know, we have to uh, close down operations at half past 11 at night because we've got very old tunnels or very old trains and this would allow us to go a lot longer into the night, maybe two o'clock in the morning, open earlier, all that kind of thing. Mm. You've got, I've met some of your team today. Uh, Valerie Davidson is your assistant CEO. What does she do? She's got a variety of roles, but she traditionally the finance, very good uh, dealing with the Scottish government in terms of funding, uh, any grants that we put forward with all the local authorities, good relationships. Obviously, if we're getting our funding through the local authorities, we've got to keep them uh, right. well appraised and on side. She's very good at that. And also she's uh, in charge of our HR, uh, and she's also uh, got, she had responsibility for business improvement, which is now handed on to somebody else, uh, because that is a big program that we're going through. And, you know, what I do find is that once we show our people a different way of doing things, they're quite happy to do that. So uh, if I was to blame anybody for not advancing, it's the management structure, not the people at the ground level. Your city's here is on the water. Uh, and we didn't mention this, but you actually run a ferry, right? We're on a ferry, but it's yeah. not on the River Clyde here. It's away oh. down at a place called uh, Gurok to Kilcreggan, which is a peninsula of land that connects into one of the local authority areas of which we only kind of help them for a part, which is called Argyle Butte. But it's a very short crossing that allows people to live in the country and travel into the city. So they get a train at the other end. A little bit afield from our conversation, but uh, when we were talking about the last question made me think about it. Can you talk a little bit about the structure of how the United Kingdom works and how, you know, that people may not understand that Scotland and Wales are kind of like separate, but not as separate as Northern Ireland? Or how does all the, just give us like a little primer on British government and how it works over here for a minute or two, okay. just because a lot of people aren't, aren't familiar with that. Yeah. Okay, so we're all branded as, like call it Great Britain and Northern Ireland. You, okay. You know, the separate part of Ireland, which people call ERA, but or Southern Ireland, but it is just Ireland. So Northern Ireland and Scotland, Wales and England are all Great Britain, but Scotland has its own parliament, a devolved parliament. So does Wales. And Northern Ireland has one, but it's a bit of a conflict at the moment. So so they're not meeting at the moment. Just oh. now, and they haven't been meeting for two years. They're trying to bring them together because there's, there's other connotations in Northern Ireland, which is the kind of sectarian. Right. Kind of stuff, yeah. Catholics and Protestant kind of a thing. Correct. Yeah. Correct. So they're trying to join the South and the North back together? Yes, they are. Okay. Yes, they are. And the people in the North don't want that to happen, or at this moment in time, they don't want it to happen. Right. And the politics are difficult. And, so, you know, there's been troubles in the past. Yeah. So is Scotland and Wales, are they considered nations or states or what? Wales at one time was a principality of England, but is now a separate country. It's been a country for a, a good few years. So they are a separate entity in that term, but they're actually, their government... A lot of connect. They're very close to England, and actually, a lot of people commute from parts of Wales into the centre of London. Scotland, at this moment in time, of course, is you know we are looking to be. Well, many people in Scotland are thinking they would like to be separate from England and be totally independent. Because as you know, at the moment, maybe the UK is looking to for Brexit, which is how do we come out of the European Community? People and some people in Scotland are saying, well, we don't want to come out of the European Community. We'd be happy to stay in but we're part of the United Kingdom or we're part of Great Britain. Uh, and if Great Britain comes out of Europe, then Scotland comes out of Europe. And of course, the Scottish people called, you know, and there's a, a party called the Scottish Nationalist Party, and they'd be very keen for Scotland to stay in Europe. Okay. Uh, and if they stay in Europe, it would be, how do we stay in Europe or would we need to apply again? So all these politics are going on at the moment. Yeah. 
Interesting. So you all use uh, still the British pound, you don't do the euro, right? We all use the British pound here, yeah. that's correct. So the euro, obviously, you know, the value of the pound has been falling over a good number of years. And of course, it goes up and down with the markets. Right. And so the, the bus services that operate here, do they set their own fares? They do set their own fares, but obviously where they interface with each other, then there's a kind of competitive edge. There is another element of the fares in Scotland, which is the people here who are over 60 will get free travel on buses. Okay. So they're issued with a pass, you know, a concessionary pass. Uh, and actually on the buses in Scotland, about 43% of the fare revenue is coming from subsidies. In other words, the Scottish government are subsidising that. Is that through you? Not through us, it's through Transport Scotland. Okay. Uh, and so Transport Scotland, so that is about uh, about £200 million. Pounds wow. It's the budget for that every year. Uh, so it means that, you know, the idea is that people over 60 uh, can get out and travel. Right. So I, I was telling you earlier, I interviewed Giles Fernley, uh, the head of First Group, yeah. for BUS yesterday. And uh, they run a lot of the service up here. They do. So we were downstairs meeting with your planning staff and your finance staff. So tell us how all that actually works. Do they, do they just come in and propose routes to you or you have a strategy, a plan that you ask them to fill in? Or Mainly, you know, they're commercial bus companies, so they're going to look for where they can make money. Right. So they do propose the routes that they'd like to see, they'd like to run on. So they then would put in a request to us, and which would go to the traffic commissioner, who's the authority in Scotland, that would say, yes, you can do that route. Ah. So they would give us the detail of every stop and how long it would be. So we would know the route length, where the bus stops are, and we would put together a program, you know, that would be put up in bus stops, or nowadays it would be, you know, actually electronically. Yes, real-time arrival information. Which is much better for people. And real-time has made a significant difference, but not just for the passengers arriving at a bus stop, which is very, very important, but also for us to be able to mine information. So you get kind of big data, and we're only starting to develop that because it's only in the last year that the bus companies have come on board to allow us to use that information. They were allowing it to be used for real-time information at bus stops, but the other big benefit is you start to know where people are moving around, and so that's given us a much better opportunity to help develop. And we have very good relations with these bus companies because it's in their interest, and we can say to them, look, there's potentially a market there, and if there is no market, or if there's ones that are creaking, because then we can potentially subsidise it, maybe the early part of the day and the later part of the evening. Right. So if a bus company like First Group comes in and says, Gordon, we'd like to do a bus route here and there's no current bus stops there, do you put in the infrastructure for them at the shelters and things like that? Yes, we would. Oh. And we do that in conjunction with the local authority because some of them need, you know, electrical connections and different things. And some of them want advertising panels in it and whatever. So it tends to be that actually there's not been a lot of uh, new, I would say completely new routes. But what has been a lot is refurbishment of the, the stops that are there with a shelter and maybe with the advertising panels. And if, if a competing company comes in, let's say RATP Dev comes in and says, we want to put one in, but it's going to it's gonna be at the same bus stop this other place does, but then go somewhere else. How do you work that out? Now, there's no problem with that. They can compete against each other on the, you know. And in the go- same bus stops? Yes, they can, yes. Uh, so anybody, what we don't want, what we don't like, and what does happen sometimes is if a competitor comes in, they put their bus time at one minute ahead of the Oh, uh, yeah, bus. to try to... You know, so if it was an hourly service and somebody wanted to come in, we would like it to be at the half hour. Right. But some of them say, no, no, we want to do it you know, a minute before. And that's not good for the passenger. No. 
it might be the kind of thing that people in competition think is a good idea, but it's not. But can you control that? Can you tell them? No, you we push can't. back? No, we can't. We push back and say, look, we would prefer if it was at this time. But they can say, no, we're a commercial operator. We've got a right to determine when these buses are going to be there, what time. But the traffic commissioner has the final say? Yeah, but the traffic commissioner it can only say you're serving the route properly, but they can't say as oh, well. Oh, they can't micromanage the time. Yeah. That's really interesting, the structure. It was all set up by Margaret Thatcher, right? Margaret Thatcher deregulated the buses. <laughs> and at the beginning, of course, you know, some of the streets in Glasgow were full of buses. Because everybody thought they could. Oh, right. Yeah. And of course, uh, you know, that whittled down to you know, what's competitive. You only, you only lose money for so long. Yeah. Some, some people did well out of that, some of the bus companies, and they established themselves. Yeah. It's funny because the history of how bus service runs in Great Britain is almost exactly the opposite of what it is in the United States. Because in the United States, it was private bus companies. Like in Baltimore, where I was a CEO, there was the Baltimore Bus Company up until the 70s. And then they all, basically all across the country, they went out of business. They couldn't make money anymore. And then the government came in and took them over. So just about the time that Americans were taking over the systems, Britain was untaking them over and giving them back to the private sector. It's really think, interesting. And uh, that was obviously part of Margaret Thatcher's type of, you know, everything, right. everything was to go private sector because at that time it was heavily state-owned, everything, railways, oh, yes. all that kind of stuff. So obviously she was going to get money as well in right. for these, you know, selling off these assets, which probably got sold off very cheaply. But I mean, there is a, there is a if you look in, and I know you're, you're in Glasgow today, but if you go to Edinburgh, for example, yeah. So what happened in Glasgow was that Glasgow there was a Glasgow corporation that ran the bus services, probably didn't make any money, and they were forced to sell off. So they did sell off. Now Edinburgh didn't quite sell off. Okay. So what they did is they sold it to a company that was owned by the council, and it runs very successfully today. It's got the best one of the best fleets in Scotland. So it's called Lothian Buses. Okay. One of the best fleets in Scotland. People like the buses. Allowed to travel on them, they're high class, all of that. So there's a kind of a, and it makes money. Wow. Yeah. That's something. So, how does the rail system work up here? The rail system is a, a franchise operation, and it's not just here, but it's across the whole of the UK. Because Scotland is a very small network, apart from around about the Glasgow area, it is only a franchise to one company, and it's ScotRail. And ScotRail is a brand name, and it's run by, at this moment in time, by a company called Abelio who are from the Netherlands. Indeed, prior to that, it was first that was running that. So it's not having a very good time at the moment. I think there's lots of problems with the- So the train station I came in today to, that's who like owns that? All the track and infrastructure is by Network Rail, okay. which is the state okay. that owns that. In a separate company, of course. Uh, but on that, so that's what's getting leased out to people. But in, in Scotland, it's only one franchise, ScotRail, whereas down south, you have lots of different yeah. franchises because it's a, 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 you know, a very developed rail network. So I came in on the sleeper train, the Caledonia, and that's run by another company. Yes, it is run by another company. S- and, and that's just the, the, the cross-country uh, okay. type stuff. You know? So when I say to England, there is a other, so in Scotland, it's just ScotRail. But to England, there are other routes run by other companies. Yeah. So you've got Virgin Trains, for example. Oh, right, right. Yeah, you've got Cross Country as another company, which runs you know specific routes out of Glasgow, but they're mainly down to England. In America, there's a lot of talk about Uber and Lyft yeah. and uh, microtransit and even uh, autonomous vehicles, yeah. buses without drivers. What's the status of that here in Scotland? It's becoming very developed. Uber's very, very quickly developing. A lot of people using Uber. 
and the kind of mass type thing, you know, the mass transit. Right, mobility as a service, yeah. So that is, uh, people are talking about that, but I think at the moment people are trying to wonder how do you make money out of that? Because if you're going to plan your journey and pay for bits of it and all this, so, but there's quite a school of thought that says that will work, but Uber is here just now, Lyft is here as well, and they are developing well. A lot of people now, we're noticing this as well, a lot of younger people, particularly if they live around the city, are not having a car. Right. Because they find it easier, more socially acceptable, you know, you can get, have a drink, yeah. you know, having to drive the car home, right. just get an Uber taxi, hail it, you know, and it's there within a couple of minutes, don't need to go to a taxi rank. But it is having a big effect on the traditional taxi operators. Right. They don't like this. Yes. And how is that affecting bus ridership, would you say? Yes, I think it's a big effect in bus ridership. Is ridership anyway. down in this oh, area? Massively down. Yeah. It's gone from 170 million to 110 million over the last 10 years. It's phenomenally wow. down. Uh, because people in this area, because of the way uh, it's fragmented, they don't actually think that bus standards are good. You know, like sitting in a bus is uncomfortable. They prefer rail here. And the other thing that impinges quite a bit at the moment is cheap cars. Cars are quite cheap now relative to what they were at one time. Mm-hmm. You know, your house used to be the most expensive thing you had. Your car was maybe the next, apart from children, of course. <laughs> uh, and so you could get a car now for under £10,000 here. You know, okay, it's a cheap thing, but it'll get you around. Yeah. So lots of people are choosing to do that. And of course, what we're having now in this area is, you know, people are thinking about the environment. And in Glasgow, they're bringing in, a, you know, a low emission zone to try and reduce that, which is a bit like London, you know, in terms of the mm-hmm. congestion type of thing, but to try and bring down emissions. But it's started off with buses, so it's a progressive route for that. So the answer to your question is that it's had a big effect. Are you thinking about... Probably uh, a good, a positive effect as well in terms of, you know, actually giving people more opportunity. Right. Are you, uh, are you thinking about using autonomous buses at all? I think we're a wee bit away from that. Even the electric buses at the moment are... Uh, they are coming, the technology is coming, and it will develop. But at this moment in time, I'll give you an for example. Glasgow is quite a hilly yes, city. Seven hills. Seven hills we're sitting on, and the torque to go up some of these hills required by some of the buses is immense. And actually, the electric at the moment, and some of them, it's difficult to get them up there. Okay. And of course, the, the range. But if you've got a depot near the city, and maybe they don't do 80 miles a day. The other problem with the electric buses that we've found at the moment is that the resale value of them at the end is low Mm -hmm. because it's battery packs people are looking at and saying these battery packs are very expensive. I am sure over time that will get a lot better. But right at this moment in time, none of the operators are around, not, not none of them. Some of them are using hybrids, but basically most people are still using traditional vehicles. Diesel. Euro 6. That's what's been pushed through for the low emissions one. Right. So let's talk a little bit about your subway system, the ridership of it, how it works, and then I'm excited. Uh, you showed me some videos, and I'm excited to see it in person, the new renovations you're going through. Tell us about all that. Okay, well, the subway, as you say, is one of the third oldest in the world, you know, from 1896. The only two other cities are London, and what's the other one? Budapest. Budapest, yeah. Uh, well, they were before us. That was it. Right. And... Uh, our trains, as r- roughly, there's been two modernizations over the period since it was put in. The last one being over 40 years ago. The trains, of course, are you know, very hard. Even 40 years old. Yeah. yeah. They're more than 40 years old. Okay. Uh, and, of course, we have a very aging infrastructure. So we approached the government and said, look, really, we can't continue to repair these. It will cost uh, more than it would be to you know, actually develop a new program. So we got to go ahead to do that, and we developed a new program, came forward and said we would need £288 million 
the government gave us or, or promised us and have been living up to the promises, 246 million. The rest we had to generate from our own funds. So we're on course for that. We're about halfway, well, probably more than halfway through the developments. It's all been specified. The contracts were let. We have our joint venture, which is made up of Stadler and Ansaldo, which has now been sold to Hitachi. So they're the people delivering it. That programme should finish about probably 2022, around about 23. Uh, and it's seen things like platform screen doors, totally unattended operation, moving from at the moment, which is drivers on the trains. So we'll be, and the stations will be very modern and the opportunity to have longer opening hours will be there. How many riders a day do you have now? Well, I'll, I'll put it, it varies. Some of the peaks are about 40,000, so quite okay. a lot. Uh, and uh, over the year, it's 13.2 million. That's been our, our last. But I then put that in context. I did have a visit to uh, some part in Moscow, and they were having 7 million a day, so it puts us in context. Yeah, <laughs> interesting. So it's, it's uh, your cars, I noticed, I rode one uh, in, in London the other day, and you mentioned they're going to be the same way. They don't have doors between the cars. Tell us about that. That open feel is very nice. You don't have to kind of go through a door to get into another car. Yeah, well, that's true. And I think a lot of people, from a safety point of view, if if late at night, you're the only one inside a cab, you know. Right. But women don't feel safe about that. So the idea of having it, you know, ability to walk through the cars is a big bonus, we believe, for people, you know, using it, the ridership. Yeah. It also, it helps with the, uh, we've changed, it used to be three separate cars. It's now two separate cars at the end, and the one in the middle is like two half cars, I reckon. I know it's not a very good description, but it means the articulation is better. Okay. Because we have a, a system that's not nice, flat. Ours goes up and down because of well, the way it was put in at the beginning, it was cable hauled. Oh, yeah. So you had to ride up to a station and fall away from the station, you know, clamping onto a cable. So our tunnels go up and down, roundabout, fancy corners, stations that, you know, are in curves. So it's very hard. So getting the extra movement in the, the train uh, carriages is good for the articulation, you know, move around. Yeah. So let's talk, our last uh, kind of question area would be the future. Yeah. So other than this big modernization of the subway system, is there anything else new or well, technology-wise come into your system? Probably not in the subway for, for, okay. for a bit of time right. because it's probably going to be one of the most modern in Europe when we get it. That'll be great. Yeah, and, you know, I think a lot of people want to see it. Uh, I think that, you know, in, in from a, an area point of view, yes, yes, I think there'll be lots of changes because I think what's happening is the cars are getting driven out of the cities. Actually, Glasgow's got, for example, too many car parks. And, you know, so, but, you know, these are commercial operations, so people still want the cars to come in the city centre. So you've got the, the tension between city car park operators and the council saying, we don't want all these cars in the city centre. Glasgow is an old, traditional, very modern, you know, nice-looking buildings, uh, but it's a grid system. And it's very difficult to see how you can keep pushing cars and people are in. So actually there's a big movement now towards a lot of pedestrianisation and that's okay as long as the system inside the city can still move people around. We are quite a lot of, uh, obviously, people moving to cycling, walking, so there's a big push on walking and cycling. Uh, sometimes the weather in Scotland is not as nice as it is today because it is very beautiful today, I'm sure yes, you'll attest to that. Yeah. Uh, sometimes we get rain. So that, that motive, you know, mitigates against people who want to walk and cycle. Right. So you, you can see... You can see a lot of change coming, you know, yeah. like the, uh, more pedestrianised in the city centre. Problem for that is the retail offering, because we have a lot of out-of-town operations now, uh, you know, like uh, malls that people would go to. 
Uh, and of course, they could drive in there, park for free, right. go in, buy their shopping undercover, come out and go. And that is bad for a city centre. Yes. So what we get is lots of people coming in the morning to work in office blocks, you know, the, uh, you know whether it's an insurance company or a bank or whatever it is. But you need them to be coming back at night. There needs to be some use of the city for shopping, uh, you know, like weekends, nighttime economy. I mean, even in terms of, you know, just restaurants and whatever else happens in the evening. So the city needs to think about how we try and match these. Mm-hmm. And SPT will be right in the middle of it, right? We'll be right in the middle of that. Making <laughs> suggestions for That's great. Thank you so much, Gordon, for being You're with us today. Welcome. It's a great description of how it all works here, and we wish you the very best that you will be able to come on time and under budget for your big project. Yes, thank you very much. Thank, thank you. you for coming. You've been listening to Transit Unplugged, powered by Trapeze Group. To stay up to date, subscribe on iTunes or Google Play, or join the conversation at transitunplugged.com. Thanks for listening.